Our gospel lesson today follows upon the lesson we had last Sunday at Easter, which is the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. Last week we saw Jesus' appearance to Mary in the garden and calling her by name. We follow this up beginning at verse 19 with an appearance to um, an exchange with that person we have come to know in history and popular culture as Doubting Thomas, beginning at verse 19 of chapter 20. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. On this cool and bright day of Easter, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lead us to greater understanding and faith and give you glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. It seems an inevitable byproduct of the celebration of Easter that people are moved to voice doubts that they have about the Christian faith. This year during the days surrounding Easter, Two different Westminster members emailed me with articles about doubt. One was entitled, Why Doubting the Bible is Good for Christians. Another was entitled, God is a Question, Not an Answer. Both articles weigh heavily on the minds of our members who sent them, but not so heavily as to drive them underground with their doubts, to keep them away at Easter or to lead them to feel that they cannot reach out to their minister or their congregation 
about the doubts with which they wrestle. On the assumption that these are not the only two people in the congregation who harbor doubts from time to time, and to honor their reaching out, I'd like to turn to the gospel lesson that every year on the Sunday after Easter, the lectionary assigns us. This is one of the few passages in the lectionary that is assigned every year rather than once every three years. And it is a passage, the only passage, about the person who has come to be known in history as Doubting Thomas. By the time we get to Thomas in the second half of chapter 20 of John, His story marks the culmination of a series of encounters that disciples have had either with the empty tomb or the risen Christ or both. Each encounter has its own unique and distinctive characteristics. We saw one of these or a couple of these in the sermon on Sunday. Three people, Mary Magdalene, the beloved disciple, and Peter, arrive at the tomb and find it empty. The beloved disciple looks in and sees burial clothes laying where the body would have been and immediately believes. Peter looks in, sees the same sight, but leaves apparently unpersuaded. Mary remains in the garden outside the tomb, And as we saw last week, she is overcome with grief and anger on her assumption that someone has stolen and desecrated the body of Christ. She then sees a figure that she assumes to be the gardener, but when the figure calls out her name, she recognizes the figure as the risen Christ. And she leaves the tomb proclaiming, I have seen the Lord. Thus, leading up to the story of Thomas, there are several responses among those who encounter the empty tomb or the risen Christ. This variety continues with Thomas. The disciples are huddled in a home, doors locked for fear of the people that have put Jesus to death. The risen Christ stands among them, having passed through these unlocked doors. He says, peace be with you. He then shows the disciples his hands and his feet. When they see the injuries that his now risen body had sustained on the cross, they believe. The disciple Thomas is not with them. When the disciples see him, they say, we have seen the Lord. Thomas says to them, unless I see the mark of the nail in his hands, Unless I put my finger in the mark of the nails, and unless I put my hands in his side, I will not believe. One week later, the disciples are gathered again in the same house, and this time Thomas is present. The risen Christ again appears through locked doors and immediately focuses his attention On Thomas. Put your finger here and see my wounds, Christ says. Reach out your hand and put it in. Touch 
my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Keeping his hands in his pockets, in his robe, Thomas simply says, My Lord and my God. And as John writes this story for us, and he's the only one that gives it to us, he places an exclamation point after Thomas's words, My Lord and my God. This, these words of Thomas are not only personally exclamatory, but they are also theologically accurate. They are, in fact, the most complete and accurate statement about the nature of Christ that is made by any disciple in this gospel. Now, in chapter 21, which follows, there will be accurate statements made about Christ. But chapter 21 is like an epilogue to the gospel. The gospel proper ends with chapter 20. And it ends with this disciple making this confession of faith, which bears witness to the full identity of who Jesus is, my Lord and my God. So what Thomas had come through with this experience of doubt was a tremendous affirmation and understanding of who Jesus was. In the final scene, Jesus then praises Thomas for his faith. But he points to those like us whose faith will occur centuries into the future. Have you, bec have you believed because you have seen me? Jesus asked Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have or will come to belief. Now, how might this story of Thomas address specific doubts that we who gather here might have at different points in our lives about our faith? There are several major types of doubt that we can have over different periods of our lives. Some of us doubt because we've never really had a dramatic religious experience that leads us to believe without much questioning. God has not spoken to us. God has not filled us with a sense of call. We've, we have not seen through the beauty of nature or the love of another human being. God, even though we may have experienced the beauty of nature and the love of another human being. Thus, our faith in the absence of such experience harbors a certain degree of doubt because we have not had a religious experience that leads us to believe without questions. Some of us doubt because we have either not experienced forgiveness or not forgiven somebody or not felt forgiveness from God. Countless, of, countless numbers of us 
feel that we are distant from or in some ways unworthy to be in the presence of God, even unworthy to be in church because of something we have done or we have experienced. We doubt because of forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness. Some of us doubt because of tremendous suffering that we see in our world on the news, in work that we have done, in our neighborhood, or because of tremendous suffering that we, have, we ourselves have experienced. The sight of suffering and the power of evil that lies behind it leads us to call into question either the goodness of God or the power of God or both. We doubt because of the problem of evil. Some of us doubt the legitimacy of following Christ because of the behavior of others in His name. I am certain that the tiny Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka with its anti-gay protests at military funerals has driven thousands more people away from Christianity than it has brought people into the faith. There are countless examples in history where the church or individual Christians don't seem to practice the tenets of its faith and its religion. And so we doubt because of what we see Christ's followers doing in Christ's name. And finally, for still others of us, the primary source of doubt in our faith is the lack of historical or scientific verification that meets our standards, that satisfies our intellect, that puts our restless hearts at rest. We doubt because we cannot prove, we cannot verify. As many forms of doubt as there are in our minds, Thomas's form of doubt falls more nearly into the last category than any of the other four that I have mentioned. The articles that members sent me likewise express concern that either the experience of God stories about God in the scripture or key aspects of Christ's life, including the resurrection, cannot be proved, cannot be verified. This concern for verification leads the authors of these articles and presumably our members who sent them to me to have serious reservations about the faith. Yet like our members, neither of these authors is willing to abandon the faith because of doubt. So how does Thomas's story address the need or desire that we might feel be feeling for verification? In many ways, Thomas is tailor-made for such a concern. Thomas puts forth conditions for verification. 
the conditions are met, and Thomas believes. So on one level, the story of Thomas may be saying that our desire for verification is legitimate. God will provide whatever verification is needed. And once we receive verification, we, like Thomas, can believe. But the trouble is, it never quite happens that way, at least for most of us. For one thing, the standards of verification of what is true and what is factual have varied over the centuries. Up until about the 1200s, if someone was accused of a crime, the way that it was decided whether they were guilty or not guilty was called a trial by ordeal. And if they survived the ordeal that was put before them, it was considered a sign from God that they were innocent. With the Magna Carta, the trial for ordeal began to fade. And there arose the need to have some other kind of evidence to determine guilt or innocence. And that's how we got trial by jury. And once we got trial by jury, we needed witnesses. And we needed what were called facts that we could reasonably and rationally verify in order to determine the guilt or innocence of a person. This lasted, this concern for facts, and this assumption that facts could be verified and could be reasonably assessed, lasted for hundreds of years. But in the last hundred years or so, we, are, we have grown suspicious of facts. We have a suspicion that all reasoning, that all human reason, is simply another form of rationalization. We have grown to ex- believe the idea that science is just another faith. And we have come to believe that objectivity itself is an illusion and therefore impossible. Thus, we are in a situation today in our culture, and you see it in our politics, that unlike in previous centuries, we are often now rarely able to agree on the facts, better yet, the values that lie beneath them. Fortunately, however, there's another aspect of the story of Thomas that moves beyond the specific verification or specific proof that he and we may be seeking. This aspect of the story comes at the end in the blessing that the risen Christ gives Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me, Christ asks? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. It is as if Christ is saying, Blessed are those whose conditions for verification have not been met, yet who have come to believe. Blessed are those whose beliefs have not been proved, yet have come to believe. Blessed are those who have not seen, 
yet have come to believe. With this final blessing, the risen Christ is saying that there is an aspect of faith, a very important aspect of faith, that can never be verified. An aspect that that lies beyond our categories of science and history that transcends our knowledge at any particular time in history with any particular definition of knowledge that we provide. Perhaps Thomas instinctively acknowledges this aspect of faith when in the end he does not actually accept Christ's offer to touch the wounds in his hand and in his side, but instead comes forth with words of worship and affirmation, my Lord and my God. Perhaps Thomas has come to realize that faith in Jesus Christ is deeper than receiving verification, particularly when he, Thomas, has been the one to set the terms of verification. If this is the case, as I believe it is, Thomas paves the way for all of us who believe without seeing, however murky and halting our belief sometimes is. Thomas paves the way for all of us who walk by faith and not by sight. Thomas paves the way for all of us who sing Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Not blessed verification, Jesus is mine. Somehow, assurance is a little more sweet to the soul than verification. Believing without seeing is not just about Thomas. It is about us as well. Thomas saw, Thomas heard, Thomas believed, but Thomas gave up his final need for and condition of verification and proof. I believe that we too can give up that need and believe even without seeing. Amen.